Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordial Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack Oswetsu and Gergovacci of Cordial Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. And welcome to the NK News Podcast. This is your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and I'm recording this on Tuesday, the 22nd of August. I'm joined today in the NK News studio by my great colleague, Jongmin Kim. Welcome back on the show, Jongmin. Thank you for having me. Busy talk- week. It is busy. It feels like a lot's going on. I've actually got that written in my notes here. So let's try to run through as much as we can. Um, I've got point one, satellite launch. What's mm-hmm. going on? When? Why? Well, in the next two weeks or so, North Korea will be launching another rocket with the satellite. They failed last last time in May, splashed down into the Yellow Sea. And too bad for North Korea, South Korea, and salvaged it and still analyzing them. Right. But yeah, they have already said that before, but they now formally announced Mm -hmm. um, by sending a notice to Japan. And this is a military recon satellite, right? Yes. Okay. Now, the last part you said there, uh, we've got to focus on that. They sent a notice to Japan. Mm. How is it that Japan got this notice first before anybody else? Well, because it seems like it, it's still unclear, mm. but it seemed last time when yep. that happened, the international organization got the notice that North Korea will be, you know, th- there will be certain um, coordinates mm-hmm. that North Korea is looking at that will, where the ships will have to be careful. So it's like a safety oh, like a notice sort of zone. thing mm. to make sure yep. that North Korea looks like a responsible actor. Right. Now, they haven't always done this, have they? Well, it depends on the rocket, but ah. it seems especially for the satellite launches, they yep. want it to be seen as a responsible use okay. of a, you know, peaceful use of space. Right. So if this were an ICBM launch, they probably wouldn't say much of anything. But uh, since it's a satellite launch, they're trying to, as you say, look responsible. Relatively. Right. Okay. Then we've got, uh, wow, number two. This one's from the Korean Central News Agency. And I've got a bit, a bit of a quote to read here for our listeners. They've issued a commentary, uh, and the title is Armed Forces of Our Republic, No, No Mercy. And here's the quote. And listeners, put down your coffee for this one. A thermonuclear war, the first ever in history, is more than likely on the Korean Peninsula. The United States and the South Korean puppets started on August 21st the joint military exercise Ulchi Freedom Guardian, unprecedented in scale despite our repeated warning. The United States mobilized not only the hardware and armed forces deployed in the operational area of the Korean Peninsula, 
but also the space forces from the mainland for the first time in history in the current nuclear war exercise to last until the 31st with the involvement of vast armed forces. Expected to be deployed are the U.S. nuclear assets, including nuclear carrier, nuclear submarine, and the B-1B and B-52H strategic bombers. And this is the interesting part. An aggressive nature of the current exercise is more revealed as Australia, Canada, France, Britain, Greece, Italy, New Zealand, and the Philippines, the war criminal states which joined in the Korean War under the signboard of the UN forces are involved in it. And listeners can read the rest at kcnawatch.us. That's quite an amazing statement. It sounds, you know, it sounds like a big threat. What is this Ulchi Freedom Guardian all about? So many things I will have to point out from that. First of all, KCNA editors need to do their homework because Ulchi Freedom Guardian was gone. Ah. And we changed the name to Ulchi Freedom Shield. So it's not Guardian anymore. Uh That's in the past. Now it's UFS, not UFG. Ah. But apparently the KCNA editor did not check NK News website. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, yeah. So yeah, just one thing about that. Other stuff, there are a lot of yes and no parts in that statement. Like partly accurate, partly not. Mm -hmm. The part about how it's a very large scale exercise between US and South Korea, it's true. It Mm. has been scaled up a lot, especially last time in 2022 summer, it was already scaled up. But this time there will be more than 30 uh, field training exercises. So KCNA is right about that. That is the plan. And also it comes after the Camp David summit. So it will likely be there will also be sideline drills with the UFS during the time or after UFS ends. So it is true. It, it is a good point that they're pointing out this comes after the summit and how this shows the increasing friendship between the two or three countries. Mm. But about the UN forces part, right? that's quite interesting how, how North Korea is framing them as war criminal states. War criminal states. Yep. But I kind of expected this because South Korea for the first time when they were announcing at the defense ministry building recently about the UFS plans, mm. it was the first time in a formal announcement of a drill that they publicly acknowledged and announced that the UN forces or more like UN member states will be joining some part of the drills. So they did announce it publicly. Okay. Yep. But they participated before as well because, right. you know, UNC and CFC and USFK, they are, you know, led by the same general. Right. Um, so so it wasn't a secret, but I, I guess rhetoric and how government frames something is important. And South Korean president also in multiple speeches referred to UN command and the rare base in Japan as well as mm. someone, something that will help South Korea retaliate against North Korea, if North Korea... Inv- so he has been framing it like UNC is part of US. Right. So I think to that, yeah. KCNA responding to, because that is a rhetoric that we have not seen that often before. But what about the top line, though? Uh, and, you know, I've got to go back to that sentence. Thermonuclear? There. Right. A thermonuclear war, the first ever in history, is more than likely on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, that's, uh, that's a heck of a way to start. Yes, uh, your, it's, a, it's a yikes moment. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's a yikes moment. Pearl but Yikes, but not new. So right. it's an old yike. Okay. Um, we have we have heard that before. A rehashed yike. Yeah, rehashed yike. Mm. We we heard that before multiple times in the past few months. So I guess we can say it's new because it's past few months. Mm. But the, the high-level officials said that before in the similar logic where they're basically um, saying that the U.S. or South Korea will be accountable for any nuclear war that happens on the peninsula because you started it, uh. is their logic. And the you started it part was also the justification for them to make the new nuclear doctrine law last year. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So we got that going on. So uh, Ulchi, Ulchi Freedom's shield mm-hmm. until the end Ta-yue of the month. Bang-pe. 
Ah, okay. It's got a different name in Korean. Well, I mean, it's got a translated name in Korean. <laughs> now, then the, the NIS, the National uh, Intelligence Service, had its uh, regular closed-door briefing to the National Assembly's Intelligence Committee last week. Mm. Uh, and as often happens, uh, the ranking member of the ruling People's Power Party told reporters what was said in that briefing, or at least some of it. Uh, so what was said? And I always say grain of salt because these are lawmakers trying to memorize things from the briefing and relaying that to the reporters. Well, they do hold the notes, but if you look at some video clips, they are sort of mixing in their analysis and memories Uh, from the notes they have taken. So always we need to take a big grain of salt. But there were a few interesting things in there, such as how they kept seeing NIS reportedly keep seeing signs of potential ICBM launch by North Korea. But now that I think of it, it could have been about the satellite launch. I'm thinking the same thing, right, because it's the same kind of rocket, is it not? Depends on what they're planning. Ah. Uh, But it could be. Right. And also NIS said that there were signs of movements in both solid fuel and liquid fuel related facilities. So we just don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing what it would be. But there were signs, definitely. Anything else come out of that briefing? Um, Any signs of opening? Any signs of opening, yes. But they have framed it uh, pretty generically. We have been seeing news reports and um, Mm -hmm. exclusives from the border where some people are saying students are staying there. Some people are saying, you know, the the patients or criminals in China, uh, criminals in China will be sent back to North Korea. But NIS, I guess the interesting part, most interesting part for me was aside from all these noise, it sounded like there was some dissenting opinion between China and North Korea, which I didn't get Mm. into my report. Mm -hmm. But the NIS said that China wants the North Korean workers to be repatriated back to North Korea, but North Koreans want the workers at least to just stay in uh-huh. China. These are the, for the time what, restaurant being. and factory workers and whatever else they have there, right? Whatever it is, okay. yeah. Also, there are students, and some people could count them as workers partly, oh. right? So there, it seems like there is some dissenting opinion. I guess the top line take the most important thing that NIS talked about was about Russia and North Korea yeah. issues. Some of the things that we are already kind of guessed or expected, but NIS, I'm not sure if it's their assessment or if they got an intel Intel, about this, but it is true that they revealed for the first time that there was a early August, maybe it was August 8 or something, there was a flight from Russia into North Korea to Russia, and that there were military supplies likely uh, on board that plane. So Ah. NIS said that there's an intel about that and other stuff like how they assessed that Kim Jong-un and Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, did a deal with multiple agreements in it, that that was quite interesting mm. to me. The things like the arms sales from North Korea to Russia, like munitions or missiles, we kind of already yeah. guessing that. But I guess the interesting part is, um, and I said that Russia likely suggested a joint drill, joint military yeah, drill with North something. Korea. If that happens... Has that happened in living memory? Not that I remember. Mm. Um, I can't remember anything like that before, like a large-scale yeah. joint drill publicized right, uh, right. with Russia and North Korea. If that happens, I guess there are a few... It's all hypothesis, yeah. but a lot of things to look at if it's held in Russia or North Korea, the territory. Right. How far away is it will be from North Korea if it's Russia? Yeah. Uh, what kind of assets will they reveal or... So basically, how will they create an optic similar to U.S.-South yep. Korea joint drills, like in um, interoperability? Right, and will they combine units of Russian soldiers exactly. and North Korean soldiers, and who will give commands? Exactly. All of these things. This yes. will be really interesting. Very, very interesting. But we don't know if that's going to happen yet, right? So if it's true. We don't even know if it's true. Right. But, but it's the first time NIS ever alluded to something like this. Gosh, so. Okay, so we've got to keep an eye on that one. Yes. Then we've got the Liberation Day speech by President Yoon last week, in which he emphasized that Seoul and Tokyo share universal values 
based on liberal democracy. And that, I mean, that's true, and, and it's a good thing to talk about that, but it's unusual to say that on a Liberation Day, which is normally, you know, Liberation Day is all about framing Japan as, you know, an evil empire and mm. Korea getting free from it. But now um, he, he then, as well as saying that, he, he also framed not only the North Korea, but his political opponents as, quote, anti-state forces that blindly follow communist totalitarianism. Is he accusing the Minja Democratic Party of being uh, anti-state forces? It's implied uh, in the in the political context because just many things to unpack there because yeah. it's not the first time he has alluded to this sort of phrases in his speeches. Right. Um, in the past, when he was referring to anti-state forces, that was sometimes it was about the opposition disagreeing about the Fukushima water release. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was about the labor union issues. So he used those kind of wordings to different occasions, not just foreign policy or North Korea deterrence. Yeah. So it's a loaded word. So it, it certainly is a loaded, uh, a loaded phrase. Um, phrase, yeah. Now, uh, how did the Democratic Party respond? Like we expect, they yep. were like, are you calling the opposition party anti-state forces? But I just want to mention, it, it was not, there, you know that there are people power party or just conservative politicians in general who are not really a fan of Yoon, right? It's pretty much uh, um, diversified right now. Right. And some conservative party members or former politicians actually criticized Yoon's liberation speech for not knowing the TPO, time, place, and occasion. Huh. Okay. Even when it is in line with the foreign policy right. direction, yep. Liberation Day is when it, right. it was it's Korea was decolonialized. Yep. So. Yeah. Okay, so do we put this in the basket of another example of uh, of a President Yoon gaffe or semi-gaffe in South Korea? I don't think South it's Korea? a gaffe. I think it's thoroughly planned, which okay. I think is makes it more important mm. and to some people concerning because I'm just, I'm just going to mention one thing. Yeah. In the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, Camp David Summit and just meetings before as well, the three countries overlap is in liberal democracy, yeah. freedom. Well, and, and capitalism, free trade, etc. Yes, it makes sense for the three countries' foreign policy. Mm. I'm not sure if Japan and U.S. Um, policymakers know the domestic context of how Yoon sometimes uses yeah. to prove his point to the domestic conservative constituents. Yeah, so like he is calling oppositions, uh, communist totalitarians yeah. who at wartime will side with North Korea and try to spread propaganda so that South Korea cannot win the war with North Korea even before it starts. So Wait, he's did he using say that? it yesterday. Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's in our remaining minutes, Camp David, a trilateral summit between President Biden, Prime Minister Kishida, and and President Yoon. That's unusual. That's kind of special. What was new and, and what was not? And, and how significant is it? Just really roughly put, the details of the agreements are not new, mm. technically. Okay. But the optic is new. Very new. Actually. Is it a new alliance? Is it kind of sub, you know, low level? I don't think it's an alliance. Yet. Right. And I, I think because South Koreans are so allergic to the idea of sure. an alliance with Japan, yeah. they tried very hard to frame it as a partnership or cooperation, a very strong block, maybe, mm -hmm. not an alliance, because alliance usually comes with joint training in each other's territory right. and each Japanese other's soldiers deployed yeah. there. Yeah. So I think they tried very hard not to allude to alliance. Mm -hmm. But it's something similar to that, honestly, and it depends on where you stand. If you're standing in Chinese government position, it will look like something close it, to military alliance. Yeah, and North Korea, too, I'm sure will yeah. say the same thing. Yeah. Now, you've written an analysis piece on that that our listeners should go and read. Do you remember the title offhand? Korea Pro analysis title. I can't, I can't exactly remember the exact title, but it was something about how uh, and on the surface it's a show of unity. But if you look closely... 
there are fragilities inside uh, that which are domestic politics. Okay, and listeners can find that at nknews.org slash pro. Or koreapro.org. Or koreapro.org. And also, uh, Chad O'Carroll has written his own analysis piece for NK Pro called How Camp David Summit Deals on North Korea Complicate Peninsula Security. So go and read that one for a different perspective. Now, uh, just to finish up with, it feels like there's a lot going on, but do you get that feeling on the streets here in Seoul that people are barely noticing, right? I mean, no. are they? Uh, do you expect them to be all out on the streets wearing their special jackets for the civil defense drill Mm-mm. tomorrow? Do, are they worried about thermonuclear war? Are they paying attention to a satellite launch? What are you seeing? Mostly no would be the answer, but mm-hmm. I'm very much looking for tomorrow, uh, Wednesdays, 2 p.m., civil mm-hmm. defense drill, anti-air drill. If you're staying in South Korea, you should do that at 2 p.m. for 20 minutes. You have to find the closest shelter, but I'm not sure if people are aware of that or know how to do that because no, I can't imagine people using the elevator. Yeah, so if you're <laughs> in an office building, what are you supposed to do? Go to, Run the, downstairs. to the basement. Mm. Okay, so everyone, if you're listening, uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. in Seoul and outside Seoul, everywhere in Korea, you're supposed to go to the nearest episode, the nearest uh, place of shelter. And search Google Safe Map and South Korean government website where you can find the closest shelter nearby you. Ah, okay, great, great idea. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for that, Jong-min, for coming on the show. Uh, And stay tuned because after this break, I'll be talking to Tim Peters, a Christian activist helping North Korean human rights and humanitarian affairs. Thanks, Jaco. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org slash discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. For this week's feature interview, I am joined here in the NK News studio by Tim Peters, a Christian missionary who works to help escaping North Koreans reach South Korea, as well as North Koreans in North Korea, grow their own food. Tim Peters has been in and out of Korea for decades working as a missionary. I first heard about him when I read about the Tana Month Club in a copy of the Stars and Stripes newspaper in 1997 or 98, but we first met in person at a demonstration in 2004 and have been in touch ever since. Uh, In May 2006, he was on the front cover of Time magazine's Asia issue with the headline, Soul Saver. Welcome on the show, Tim Peters. It's great to have you here. Jacko, thanks so much for your your invitation. Really appreciate it. Tim, how did you first become involved in helping North Koreans? Well, actually, that was back in 1996. Mm. And uh, at the time... This is during uh, the big famine that they call the arduous march, right? That's right. That's right. And at the time, my family and I were in Japan. Ah. We We had been helping in some of the humanitarian aid for the Kobe earthquake. Oh, yeah. and uh, But as news began to seep mm-hmm. about what was going on with North Korea, with famine, mm. with Russia withdrawing its help, etc., I began to feel that it was 
probably time to come back to the Korean Peninsula and see if in our own way we could do something to try to help. Uh, now, uh, tell our, our listeners what the Ton of Month Club, which I mentioned earlier. Well, the Ton of Month Club is a kind of a dated name. You're absolutely right. That Those were the circumstances that we first met. But that was, in a way, our first initiative to try, as a, just as a family, as a small organization, to try to address this news about a lack of food, a serious mm-hmm. uh, shortage of food in North Korea. So we simply dedicated ourselves to trying to raise enough funds to get one ton of grain to be able to send across whatever way we could inside North Korea during this time of famine. Right, and as I I think I vaguely remember from the article that I read back then, uh, you put out the challenge to anybody else who wanted to help North Korea to put that money aside to donate a ton a month, if if possible. Absolutely. We we were hoping that it would be reproducible. We thought maybe that would be a bit of a a tableau or a template for mm-hmm. others to follow. And uh, I, I'm, I, think, I think a number of people uh, tried to do that in their own way. Okay. And when did you start helping North Korean people who had already fled uh, and crossed the border into China? Well, I think that pretty much dates itself to about 1998 or 1999. As our Ton of Month Club progressed, I began to feel a, a certain frustration about sending things simply through, for example, the Red Cross mm-hmm. or other large organizations, because I knew it was going to be ending up in the, with the North Korean Red Cross, which is simply an arm of the government, etc., and therefore that distribution would principally be done, of course, to the elites, etc. So gradually, I began to travel along the North Korean-China border, mm. looking for partners that uh, would be closer to the situation in North Korea, and maybe I could more surgically insert our donations Mm -hmm. and our humanitarian food into locations. And in the process of being on the border, I began to realize personally how many people were starting to come across, and Mm -hmm. that was a whole new dimension that we had to think about and address. Yeah. Uh, Now, you're a reasonably tall white fella, so... Traveling along the border uh, in northeast China, you know, close to North Korea, meeting people, moving along without, at least in the eyes of the Chinese government, without a, an official purpose, d- that might have attracted attention. Did you, did you feel that you were being followed or watched or, or were you asked questions like, why are you here? What are you doing? I certainly think that would be especially true today mm. and in perhaps even in the last 10 years. But I think in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, although in principle that, that's the fact, but I think it was less so. And it was also possible to be spending time in cities that were nearby the border. It wasn't necessarily dipping my toes into the, you know, the Yellow or the Tumen Rivers all yeah. the time, but meeting individuals that lived nearby and had similar interests and similar senses of compassion for the North Koreans. But yeah. I mean, there were a few tight spots along mm. the way. There were a few questionings, etc., that were a little bit hair-raising, but nothing extremely serious. When did you last go to China? Well, I think it was actually, it was definitely before the pandemic, mm. uh, a couple of years before the pandemic. So, yeah, the situation, Jacko, as you have probably heard from a number of individuals, even for a year or so before the pandemic, the political situation, 
in the region with the Chinese government was becoming more tense, mm. and foreigners, uh, particularly folks from North America, etc., from Europe, were under special scrutiny. So it was a, a matter of deciding, is it absolutely necessary to go, or is it possible to do logistical analysis indirectly? Right, right. Now, do you ever work with brokers to try to get people out of North Korea or to encourage people to leave North Korea? Actually, we don't. We don't. I mean, it would, would have to be the rarest occasion. But my basic philosophy is, is that, that if a North Korean person wants help mm -hmm. in the kind of help that we can offer, I would expect them, first of all, to make the decision mm. and the rather gutsy move of leaving North Korea th themselves and getting into China. So I call that voting with their feet. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's a little bit of a litmus test whether people really are serious about, mm -hmm. about leaving and turning their back on the regime. And that's important to us as an organization uh, for a practical reason, too, because they would probably be put together with uh, uh, other individuals, etc. So we are looking to make sure that individuals, as much as possible, as, insofar as we can establish, are, are truly uh, going for the right reasons. Now, I've heard you describe the assistance of uh, moving North Koreans from, through China to South Korea, uh, a bit like the Underground Railroad or Railway of, of Civil War America. That's a, a comparison that you've made before, right? Right. Well, I think uh, quite a number of people have made that comparison. They call it the so-called Underground Railroad of Northeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And yes, I, in many ways, there are similarities, I think. For one, it's a situation under great duress. The Chinese government, not only the North Korean government, are looking for these individuals, the mm. North Korean escapees. And uh, so it, it requires individuals who are willing to help who have you know a good motivation a good compassionate uh, outlook but there is also required a certain skill set in terms of being kind of uh, street savvy yeah. in order to uh, help people over a very great distance across the breadth of china and then in usually into southeast asia now, sometimes there are, are critics of people who help North Korean escapees move through China. They, they say that there's a, what do you call it, a, an obligation, eh, obligation may be too strong, a pressure to start believing in God and, and participate in church services. Is that something that, well, how do you respond to that? Well, I think that the, uh, there are individuals and there are Christians that engage in that type of arrangement. Mm. Uh, I, for one, have never subscribed to that idea. We operate very much along the lines of, I think, what the UN would call just a, a sense of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. who, who needs help? Yeah. There are some uh, missionaries that uh, in, the, in the past, when, when the situation in China allowed for it, in fact, would require that the refugees would undergo a month or two of intensive uh, study of, mm -hmm. of the scriptures mm -hmm. before that they would help them. As a matter of fact, there's a young man who comes to our weekly catacomb meeting, mm -hmm. who fine young man, but he has very painful memories of that because mm -hmm. his mother 
said, no, I'm not going to do that. So they were separated at, at, at that time. Uh, this is a young former North Korean man That's who now right. lives in Seoul, right? That's right. Okay. So, but, but no, I'm glad you brought that up because we have uh, never engaged in that kind of uh, litmus test in a way. Uh, we simply want to be a help to these uh, folks. We may only be involved in their life for a week to 10 days. Mm. And our intervention is relatively short. And hopefully by our actions of assisting them in a way that they would like to be assisted, I feel that that is a, a witness of our, our faith in, in Christ mm -hmm. and a sense of, of loving uh, people, whoever they are. And maybe that seed of an experience may not germinate for a month or two or six months or three years or mm -hmm. 10 years down the line. Yeah. And then I think eventually, hopefully, many of them will think, uh, why is it that those individuals mm. uh, helped us? And I think hopefully a light will go on. That mm. The reasons that we told them, there was no expectation at the other end. They're not coming to be part of our congregation here in South Korea. Very yep. seldom do I even get to meet them mm. when they come. But hopefully that it's kind of a long-term view. Maybe that is a seed that will one day germinate. Now, talking about vulnerable or vulnerabilities, uh, you were recently interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and you spoke about the danger of North Korean women refugees falling victim to human traffic and being sold as brides in China or worse. Uh, this has happened to some of the, the women that your organization has helped. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think as you all know, Jacko, this has been a chronic problem with China being so close to North Korea you know, over the last 25 or more years, the, I think the, the root of the problem, uh, one of the roots of the problem is the fact that China has the worst uh, ratio of women to men of any country in the world. I mm. think it's about 118 to 100. Gosh. But up in northeast China, that problem is exacerbated even more by the fact that the three provinces that yep. immediately abut uh, North Korea, you know, Jilin, Liaoning, and Heilongjiang mm -hmm. are part of the Rust Belt yep. of China. And uh, that's a term that is quite personal to me. I come from Michigan, mm. which, yeah. you know, used to be the Flint. auto industry yeah. uh, head of the world, so to speak. And then the big three companies began to farm out their factories yeah. uh, all over the world. And suddenly Michigan fell into the Rust Belt. Well, that is true with many state industries and factories after the Deng Xiaoping era. Mm -hmm. They began to move towards the coast yep. down south. And in many ways, those three provinces were hollowed out. And as a result, many jobs and educational opportunities began to migrate to other areas. And so that discrepancy mm -hmm. suddenly became much more serious. And tragically, this Rust Belt is immediately pushed up against North Korea so that when North Korean women come out, mm -hmm. they sometimes are being caught by brokers and auctioned off in what's called bachelor villages, mm. where sometimes the, the ratio is as extreme as 14 men to one woman mm. in some of these Chinese villages. So it's, it's just a bad situation yeah. that is made even, even worse. So we we see this, this all the time in the, in the pleas and the requests, SOS messages that mm. we get 
very often of uh, they are related to human trafficking situations. Uh-huh. So you've sometimes been able to help women get out of this situation? Oh, yes. I would say that in all, almost every group that we help, there's probably at least one or two mm-hmm. that uh, have suffered some type of human trafficking, you know, victimization. And uh-huh. if I can add mm. to that, Jacko, it's the most common one that we read about in the media and, and in good human rights reports have to do with being sold as brides, yeah. right? But what we have also discovered is that there are some older women, North Korean women, who are also sold by traffickers, but they're being sold as kind of nursing helpers. In other there may be an elderly Chinese man mm. uh, who maybe is partly paralyzed, etc. So the family uh-huh. is bringing in a North Korean of an older age yep. and basically giving nursing care. And the added pain to that is, is that when this individual, who's usually elderly, mm. eventually dies, then the older North Korean woman is put out on the street. Oh. And usually that's when her desperate plea comes out. And yeah. fortunately, we have, have been able to help a number of people like that. Now, when you say we, this is obviously not you going in there and, and you know, helping women out of the situation. That's you right. have a, a group of people, uh, That's right. a network of, of locals in China. And yeah, in- there are many layers of the onion. Let me put yeah. it that way. Sure, sure. I know, obviously, you don't want to give too much away here. But here in Seoul, you have a, an organization called Helping Hands Korea. That's right. And that's how you, uh, you organize well, volunteers, but also uh, donations. Yes. Over the years, how many, roughly speaking, how many North Koreans do you think you've helped to, to make their way through China into South Korea? Well, I hesitate to, to give numbers. About a year and a half ago, I gave, I guess, the number a cautious, uh, cautiously, uh, I think, conservative uh, number. It's certainly over a thousand. Mm. So I would, I would say it, it's uh, probably. 1,500, 2,000, something like that. In fact, has accelerated. Even you may be a bit surprised, but it did accelerate even during the COVID time as many other organizations withdrew from the field for obvious health reasons. But for the North Koreans who were already there and were in hiding Mm -hmm. from before the pandemic, there was a great deal of fear Mm. because, as you know, there were health officials that were roaming the streets or going to factories or restaurants and checking temperatures and gathering information. And looking at papers. And that that, uh, caused a tremendous amount of uh, fear among the North Koreans. So they asked to leave. What roughly does it cost to help a North Korean who's already in China get out of, of China? We are able to do it for approximately $1,000. Wow. I mean, that's uh, we see over the years various numbers bandied about in the media that can sometimes yeah. be as high as 10000 or 15000 right. So 1000 seems quite, I mean, I hate to put it in economics, but it sounds quite efficient. Well, yes, uh, we're, I, we're always aiming for efficiency and to be able to do things. I mean, obviously, this is not uh, the VIP tour. Sure. People are expected to cross, you know, in the middle of the night, mountains walk through streams and go in a way, a fairly rough way. But we are dedicated to try to keep the cost of it at an absolute minimum. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
In a way, this has a kind of a built-in mechanism, too, that even anyone in the field that might be seeking a lot of profit from this type of activity, right. we would not be at all attractive to them. And right, I, so your typical broker uh, yeah, would, would not, not be a good partner yeah, for you. Would not, and I'm very happy that they don't are not interested in us because right. we're simply trying to get them to safety and then let them make their own decisions mm-hmm. one, once they get to a safe third country. Mm, okay, because that decision may be, I'd like to go to South Korea, or it may be, I'd like to go elsewhere, and, and you don't really have a, a role in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think it's not really my place to be steering anyone yep. anywhere. I mean, I think, as you well know, Jackal, the most likely destination for most of the North Koreans is going to be here in South Korea. At least initially. Yeah. Initially, for language reasons, culture, etc. Sure. But it's not always an easy experience, and so they may want to go. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, just last night, I was contacted by uh, a very good and reputable organization in, in the U.S., and they mentioned that there is a mother and a son who are already in the States, and the mother would like to bring the daughter who's hiding in China mm. there. And she was asking, is it possible? I said, well, we can continu- we'll continue to work with you and dialogue with you if the young lady is free to kind of go when we need to say now is the time, etc. Mm-hmm. But I say that I'm not involved in the, all the communications and dialogue and diplomacy or whatever that may be with various governments. Mm. I, I said that you there in the U.S. would, would need to be working with the embassy, etc., if you want to bring her to the U.S., mm. because that that's just... We're a small organization. Yeah. We can only do what we can do, yeah. but they can take it from there. So sometimes it takes multiple approaches from different angles to, to get a person to where they want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I'm a very strong advocate for letting them decide mm-hmm. what it was. I a little bit uh, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of organizations not only helping, mm. but then steering individuals for a certain place I think particularly when they head to locations like the Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. there is, there's a phenomenon that I sometimes refer to as a kind of trophy refugee, you mm-hmm. know, where they're kind of paraded around to various, you know, senators and that. And, and uh, yep. that has a good, that also can serve a very good purpose. But I think that the idea that that's the main destination yeah. for many North Koreans. I think they they all often maybe can't handle that. It's Mm-mm. too fast for them. It can't, yeah. So how has the work of, uh, of, of Helping Hands Korea changed over the years? And particularly I'm thinking about in the last few years, uh, you know, during the pandemic. Right. Well, I would say that you referred, first of all, to the Ton of Month Club. That yeah. has gone through a number of steps of metamorphosis in mm. a way, as we at one point were sending rice, but then corn, because mm-hmm. we, could, we could buy more quantity mm. of corn than we could f- the rice because of, of, the, of the costs involved. But uh, then when we were spending more time in China, when it was a little easier to do so, yeah. we set up in a small farm area n- near uh, the western border of North Korea, but in China, mm-hmm. and we were making actually nurunji, 
which is a mm. kind of rice crisps, as you know, Jacko. Yeah, from the bottom of the rice pot, the scorched bit of rice that becomes crunchy like a, like a cracker almost. Right. Yeah. But we kind of got involved in a little bit of a mass production of it mm. because a, a very close friend of ours and colleague who, who himself was born in North Korea but came down uh, during, the, during the Korean War, yeah. his idea was, okay, if, we're gonna, if you send rice... That requires a lot of cooking oil and, you know, uh, and fuel to cook it. He said, what if we make the nurunji, pack it in 5 to 10 kilo bags, mm-hmm. and then send that across? Then all the North Koreans have to do is boil water. Right. And that takes two or three minutes, as you know, et cetera, as opposed to 40 minutes of, of preparing rice. So we were busy doing that for a while. Then the North Korean, whatever the authorities, kind of got wind of that Mm -hmm. and stopped that at the border. And then someone in our catacomb meetings came up with the idea, hey, what if we were to send seeds, Mm -hmm. vegetable seeds, Mm. over? And that was about six years ago. And quite honestly, that is one of our main activities here in South Korea. As a matter of fact, immediately after the podcast, I'm going uh, to our Tuesday night meeting and volunteers will gather and we'll be packaging vegetable seeds that I buy wholesale downtown in Seoul, and we send those up into North Korea to various social welfare organizations uh, and sometimes to the underground Christians. Okay, so that that involves some, some, what should we say, non-traditional routes of uh, entering seeds into North Korea, Exactly right. right. Some exactly. might say sm- smuggling, uh, but it's, it's, you're not getting any money from it. You're, no, no. You're sending these things. So it's a smuggling where there's no commercial transaction involved. Well, it's, a, it's simply using, yes, as you say, unofficial mm, delivery routes. Right. But actually, uh, you know, with, in the past four or five months, actually, we did use an official route ah. through one office, mm-hmm. uh, and I won't give a specific sure. name to it, but it having to do with with disabilities and mm. things like that. Ah. And there happened to be a tried and proven individual who himself was disabled ah. that uh, one of our trusted partners said they could trust. So some of our seeds for the first time mm-hmm. went through that particular route. So we're, I guess, always looking for ways to innovate. Yeah. We recently started to do some sourcing of our seeds from China mm. itself. Makes it more efficient. Much more efficient, yeah. which means you don't have to jump through the customs hoop. Yep. And so that's, uh, that's one way that uh, things have kind of uh, changed a little bit when the humanitarian. And if I may just add another one, we've also had the opportunity to add simple medicines mm. to food because obviously that is also very much in short supply mm-hmm. in North Korea. And so that is very encouraging that we're kind of able to, and through some of the same delivery routes, deliver simple medicines. Not not anything as sophisticated like as TB treatments because you need yeah, training very, for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So particularly things to help the elderly, mm-hmm. nutritional supplements for children. Yeah aspirins, you know, topical, topical salves and ointments and things like that. Now, on episode 139 of this podcast back in July 2020, so almost three years ago, I interviewed another Christian missionary, Eric Foley, who leads the group called Voice of the Martyrs Korea. And his organization sends individual Bible booklets into North Korea without a political message, just Bible texts. I'm wondering, do you include any Bible messages or verses with your seeds? 
actually, no, we don't. We don't. Uh, Instructional leaflets or you know, like what is this vegetable, how to grow it? Uh, we, we've actually been asked not to simply because as hard as we try, mm -hmm. even little instructional pieces of paper that are yeah. inserted in the bags, we've been told are South Korean dialect, and that is, that's risky, apparently. Okay. So we've just simply been asked to write in English mm -hmm. on a larger bag where yeah. there may be 150 smaller bags inside. Uh -huh. uh, so it appears as if it's not coming from South Korea. Now, what about medicines? I mean, that could, you know, or medicines or supplements. You, there's got to be a way to tell them what that is, right? There is a way, and I'm sorry I can't divulge that okay. uh, over the podcast, but you're absolutely right. But that has been anticipated, and that has kind of been neutralized in mm. terms of a risk. Okay. Now, you're uh, an American. You live here in South Korea. You do a lot of your work here. Right. Has your work here been helped or hindered at different times by the government of South Korea? No, I have to, uh, to be very honest about that. Uh, no, I've occasionally been, uh, I've received visits mm -hmm. on occasions, uh, by, very politely, by individuals from the, uh, they said from the Unification uh, Ministry, mm -hmm. but eventually they admitted that actually they were from the NIS, uh. the National Intelligence Service. But I would say all of those encounters were pleasant mm -hmm. and congenial, and they were simply making sure that my work was entirely humanitarian, that was Christian in nature, and mm -hmm. I was happy to share any uh, information that they needed. And they, uh, in fact, said, look, we respect what you do, and we're not trying to interfere with you. So I always appreciated that, regardless of whether it was a conservative government or a more liberal one. I must honestly say that I've, I've not. Uh, I did have one visit at Catacombs one time, mm -hmm. just before George W. Bush passed through Seoul on his way to the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. And suddenly, a police officer appeared and very politely this asked. This is your weekly Tuesday evening meeting with volunteers right. and, and that's helpers. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it was right about the time that President Bush was arriving, and, and he introduced himself. And... Um, he asked, he said, I, I'm just here and just wondering uh, if you have any protests or if you have any demonstrations mm -hmm. planned. Mm -hmm. And apparently I had a, a bit of a reputation of attending some, you know, North Korean human rights demonstrations. And I said, no, actually I didn't, but you've given me a good idea. <laughs> and so actually a number of friends and I got together and made a, a poster mm. simply uh, and stood up on the Hyatt, near the Hyatt Hotel where President Bush's motorcade oh, yeah. was going to be passing. And the poster simply urged him mm -hmm. to speak when he went to Beijing with the authorities there in terms of protecting the human rights of yeah. North Koreans, etc. So, but that's a little bit humorous mm. example. But no, for the most part, I've been left alone and I appreciate that. What have you learned over the years from the North Korean people in your network about life inside the borders of North Korea? Well, I'm, certainly that the pressures uh, urging them to leave uh, would seem obvious. There was life inside North Korea is obviously one of shortages, and I think that is particularly true right now. Some of the reports that I've received even in the last three or four days mm. have indicated that 
and this reinforces what recently BBC came out with some uh, very sobering analysis from inside North Korea. Yeah. What I have received absolutely confirms that, that there are extreme shortages right now of food, even though the, you know, the places like Dandong and some other cross-border locations have allowed shipments of rice and things like that since March. Mm -hmm. So much of it, as we understand, is going to the elites Mm. and to the military. And then the little bit that's left over is kind of being sent out to the markets. But the prices are skyrocketing, so the ordinary people are just simply not able to afford getting a kilo of rice, which is now in some in some places as much as 5,000 North Korean won, or 6,000, I think, and a monthly wage may only be 5,000. So, yeah. I mean, it's just very, very, the people are distraught, and they're struggling and tightening their belts as, as again, once again. So, and as you know, there are no personal freedoms in North Korea. There's a a whole archipelago of labor camps and other types of uh, detention centers. So fear is everywhere, endemic to the whole society. So it's pretty grim, I would say. To, in short, life inside North Korea, except for the, those who are very much of high songbun, of the elite class, and even for them, I think it's, it's very tricky at times. So... There's a lot of reasons for people to want to leave, I think. It's not surprising. And what have you observed about the lives of North Korean refugees after they resettle in South Korea? Well, it's not all peaches and cream. Mm. I think any immigrant experience in any country is, uh, is challenging. And that is certainly true, I think, for the North Koreans. Some fare better than others. I think some of our North Korean friends... They anticipate that it may be difficult, and they do their best. I think in some cases uh, there might be a too easy tendency sometimes to kind of throw up arms and say, well, this isn't going to work, it's not what I expected, etc. But I think that's typical of human nature across the board, wherever you have a group of population. But is there adequate aftercare from the South Korean government or from self-help and volunteer groups? I do believe there are some. There are some support organizations. And I, I will be quite honest, I am not an authority on that. Again, my focus is trying to help people to escape forced repatriation from China, etc. I, I realize that the uh, situation in South Korea is not ideal. But when you stop and think, at the same time, the North Koreans who arrive uh, receive uh, free education Mm -hmm. all the way up even through a a bachelor's degree or maybe even beyond. You may know more about that. I don't know the specifics of that. But I do believe at least through a bachelor's degree in university, the North Koreans receive that. They receive a uh, housing, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. But uh, I think perhaps the greatest challenge for many North Koreans is they do feel a cold shoulder from mm. much of South Korean society. And I think that's, that's an enormous difficulty and problem, and that really needs to be addressed with more avenues and bridges in order for South Koreans to, to develop and be more welcoming. That's my overall impression. 
Now, Tim, over the years, you've seen people come and go from the field of helping North Koreans. NK News recently published a story about how some people were prompted by the extended pandemic lockdown within North Korea to leave the field and move to something else, somewhere where they can have more access. Can you talk about the movement of people that you've seen over the last two plus decades into and out of North Korea-related work and, and, and what it is that keeps you going? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I appreciate your sending me that study, and I, I looked it over, and I, I have to say that I'm not too surprised mm. by that. I believe it was mentioned that five to ten years is almost the limit for most uh, folks that are that get involved. There are barriers to longevity in it because, for one thing, if you're doing certain work, for example, as I do, where I'm essentially most of the time confined to doing what I can do here in South Korea. That means that most of the time I'm not getting face-to-face interactions. I'm having to do it, in a sense, remotely and being, of course, confirmed by various networks, etc. So that in itself lacks a certain rewarding of immediate feedback, uh, you know. And some people may not find that very exciting also, that you're doing it kind of behind the scenes, you're doing it here almost, as it were, from a desk in South Korea, removed somewhat from the real action. Right, and I've I've had my time and experiences and years of experience in face-to-face, but in a sense being confined to the logistics of it, I think, in a sense, it requires a certain discipline. It's like, okay, you don't have the emotional highs of meeting so many people face-to-face, yeah. but there's a sense of reward of every time that the group makes it safely mm-hmm. into a safe third country. So I think there's a kind of almost a maturing process that, that gets involved. And even, I mean, to be very honest, uh, there's something about North Korean society where maybe gratitude is not something that is inculcated particularly or taught very much in North Korean society. Even, I think many of the refugees may even question Mm -hmm. the motives sometimes of organizations. They may think, oh, is this a U.S. government, you know, arm of the U.S. government, etc. So, there's not necessarily always a great deal of expression of gratitude, etc. So in a way, we have to learn how to live with that mm. and just defer, okay, okay, maybe, you know, you know, they're saying being overly grateful is not necessarily the biggest issue. Yeah. The fact is they have new freedoms, they have new choices, etc. And new and, challenges. Yeah, and, uh, and challenges, absolutely right. So there's, there's that, and I guess... Two, uh, naturally, when you enter this field, you even subconsciously think, well, we're on the brink of a big change. You know, maybe the North Korean government will collapse. Maybe freedom will ring inside North Korea. And then years pass and then decades pass, etc. And you feel like you're watching a glacier move. Mm -hmm. You know, was that an inch every year or something like that? And that can be discouraging if if anyone has maybe unrealistic expectations about how fast things might move. Yeah. So, so you've probably seen some people leave who either had unrealistic expectations or maybe unclear motivations for getting into it in the first place. Right, yeah. right. And, uh, and also there is the reality where I, I, I noticed that some groups that 
suddenly start up, maybe they get funding from the local South Korean government, etc. Then the political winds change mm, and yeah. suddenly those funds dry up. Yeah. And if they're overly dependent on one source of support and funding, then uh, suddenly their enthusiasm might dry up, which, you know, is it can be understandable. So finding support yeah. and, yeah, logistical help is a big reality because... Essentially, anything you do to help the North Koreans is going to cost something. Right. And it's not always easy to drum up support mm -hmm. for these kinds of activities. And I have to say that's especially true here in South Korea. Mm. Uh, many when I go overseas and you know participate in a in a meeting or a convention or not a convention, but you know a conference or mm -hmm. something like that. People who've never been to South Korea will often say, well, I can imagine they're, you know, you're a Christian activist and South Korea has a very robust uh, mm -hmm. Christian community. Certainly they're absolutely at the forefront of that. And I say, well, I wish that were true, mm. but actually only about 15% of our budget is covered from donations here in South huh. Korea. Wow. And that surprises a lot of people. Mm. And I suppose there are are a lot of reasons for that. But when I really looked into it deeply, when I looked into the entire mission budget of the South Korean churches, only 8% of all their missionary giving goes to anything related to North Korea. Hmm. I have a little bit of an issue with that and, and as a Christian and from a biblical standpoint, because I feel that actually the biblical format uh, and the the strategy that we find in scriptures are you start with your local assistance Community. and then you mm. grow out from there. So I love my South Korean brothers and sisters, but I do think that there is a necessary change that mm. needs to take place to focus a little bit more um, in their backyard. Tim, last couple of questions. Um, your organization is unusual in that you're working both on the humanitarian side, so helping North Koreans in North Korea grow vegetables, and on the human rights side, helping North Koreans to flee from North Korea if they've already, as you said, voted with if their feet left, and crossed yeah. into, uh, into China. You're, you're aware, aware, I'm sure, that most groups work on one or the other of that divide, yes. right? Uh, yes. how, do you, how do you walk that, that tightrope? Well, I walk the tightrope in the sense of uh, one of the advantages of having been involved in this for 27 years is that you're able to develop uh, partnerships, find out who's tried and true, mm. who's worked at. And so I would say if I was personally involved inside North Korea and also involved with the refugee work, then that would be a problem as some activists have discovered to right. their chagrin. Yeah, yeah but, you can't do both in that way. Like, yeah. like that, I'm thinking of uh, Canadian Pastor Lim who was arrested in North Korea because yeah. he, was, he was kind of trying to do both while being physically in North Korea. Right. And that's really dangerous. I think so. I think so. I, 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 I don't advocate that. But if in any way that I can facilitate indirectly helping both mm. ways and not bring a risk to anybody, uh, particularly the recipients of the help, then, then, uh, then I want to do that. But I, I really don't at all advocate uh, trying to physically be involved in both areas. Mm. That's good advice. Very sensible. Now, as you mentioned, you've been in this field for 27 years now. You're not getting any younger, Tim. Um, 
when, <laughs> when you get to the stage when you're no, lo- no longer able to carry on this work for whatever reason, is there a, a plan for someone to, to take over Helping Hands career and uh, keep, it, keep the work going? At the moment, I would have to say it's not absolutely clear. And if we, you know, at, at, at any given time where it looks as if we're coming to the sunset of what we're supposed to, of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And if that's a chapter that closes, then I'm not absolutely addicted to the idea that somebody has to carry on Helping Hands Korea. If somebody appears who's full of enthusiasm and, and, and desire and has, you know, the skill set to mm. do that, then that's great. But I don't stay up at night worrying about that. If that's a legacy or thing, I, I, I just don't know. I mean, I just, I just want to do our best as long as we can. And mm-hmm. then I realize that there are a lot of other good people doing good things. Right. And uh, maybe they'll take up the slack. Okay. Well, that's uh, great. Thank you very much for joining me on the show, Tim Peters. People can find your organization, Helping Hands Korea, online at helpinghandskorea, one word, dot org. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. And there's also a a video that you've produced a, a documentary uh, on Vimeo, and we'll put the link in the show notes for that as well so people can watch the video of you talking about your work. Thank you, Jacko. This has been most really enjoyable. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks, Tim, and thanks for listening. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org slash professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time.